Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 541. I am your host. Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy on this glorious day. Apparently, the UK is set for a heat wave to last <laughs> till August. <laughs> we've never had heat for ages, and then all of a sudden, like buses that come along at once. Man, we've had some cracking weather. I sit here in my little desk there and me me little yard. I look out onto a yard. Is me 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 hanging baskets and me. My flowers are looking, I water every every day, every night. I, oh, yeah, it's got to soak them. I work for the water board, you see, so I get it. <laughs> you know, it's always by bad. <laughs> yeah, boys, I've got the bonniest flowers in the village. <laughs> Perks of the water board. No, listen, it is absolutely lovely. And I've been doing, to be honest, I've been doing rather a lot of gardening. Oh, that's the thing I was going to tell you as well. <gasps> Got a date for me bees. <laughs> me bees are coming. Remember a few weeks ago I said I was getting some bees. I've got the date. I think if everything works all right, it's the 24th of June, 2018. So if you listen to this, you know, I might have got them and you've killed a lot of them already, or I'm just about to get them. So I've got me got me outfit now, I've got me gloves, got me little jacket with me hood on and me smoker. I've lit me smoke and me bee smoker. <gasps> I'm so excited. <laughs> Man, silly old man. <laughs> so anyway, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have an original story to Starship Sova, The Singing Tree by Christian Riley, narrated by Anthony Babington. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now before, for all that, big thank you. We are now at, well last week we were at 410 and we're on this kind of up, be down. We are now standing at 416. Be buggered. Yes, Patreon supporters. Woohoo, 416. Thank you so much. A couple of them have kind of renewed. You know when you kind of wobble. In the end of the the end of the month, beginning of the month, when we do the, the when they actually when I get you, money. <laughs> I'm sitting there at the end of my computer, waiting for that clock to tick round and get me money. <laughs> well, we've had a couple of supporters join on as well, and a couple of kind of you know dragged their feet and subscribed again. Yes, yeah? so thank you so much. I'm going to give you a big thank out. I thank you out, should I say? Joe, I haven't got a clue. I haven't honestly got a clue. Joe, 
pledged their jewel gem sententel sententel jewel honestly tell I have no idea how to say that straight away I've walked into a brick wall with that one J J E C H E N T H E L Thal Thal Gensal Gem Joe, and actually Joe mentioned about the, did he like it? The, the what was it called? What do I call it now? Echoes, Starship Echoes, where we played, I played the, the interview from the old boys. You know that interview with Jerry Purnell and it was Greg Benford and who was the other, the other guy there? It was, oh, Larry Niven. Yes. <laughs> Some of the greatest writers ever on science fiction. Forget them. Yes, it was. That was done in 2013, and I remember, you know, sitting there, and it's like you say, we, we've we've been around the block, Starship Sofa. So I've kind of been lucky enough to kind of jump in there and, and you know, and and dive in and, and interview some of these. And like you say, one of them, you know, Jerry's gone there now, so it's you know, and I've I've done a few interviews where. Of the time, you know, the huge writers, you know what I mean, and and they're away there now. And but I'm lucky enough to to have them, and I'm glad. I see Joe commented on that, you know, that show there. It was it was a nice interview. It was a long one, you know what I mean. But I hey, I was just wallowing in the glory of of sitting with these old fellas and having a chat. You know what I mean? It was lovely to be quite honest. So Joe, thank you so much, <coughs> Sue. So there, thank you indeed, thank you so much, to be quite honest. And I just want to give a big shout out to Frank Pasco as well. Frank has upped his pledge, upped his bloody pledge, man. <laughs> Go on, Frank. Frank's be- God, Frank, how long have you been with us now? Probably since me and Kieran sat down to bloody, I'm sure, to be quite honest. And Tom Sanderson there, sir. Tom, I can get that one, I can get that one quite easily. Thank you, Thomas. It is a pleasure, sir, to have you on board. Big pleasure. Thank you so much. So, back to the main fiction. And like I say, it is The Singing Tree by Christian Riley. Original to Starship Sova. Brilliant, thank you so much. Chris lives near Sacramento, California, vowing one day to move back to the Pacific Northwest. In the meantime, he teaches special education, writes cool stories and hides from the blasting heat for six months of the year. He has over 80 short stories published in various magazines and anthologies and across various genres. His debut novel, one of literary suspense, titled The Sinking of Angie Piper, has recently been published by Coffee Town Press and Blackstone Audio. For more information, and there's a link on there to Chris's site, chrisreillyauthor.com. This story is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. <laughs> and that's why. Just in that one sentence, that's brilliant. Thank you. From a secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to a corporate America. Oh, yes, I've been reading documents. He has previously recorded for Farfetch Fables and The Cursed Inn, and he can be found at Twitter at Alphabaker. I think that's how you pronounce it, but there's a link on to if you'll come over here as well. While you're coming over, you know, to support Patreon, just have a little look at Chris and Anthony. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present The Singing Tree by Christian Riley. The legend goes that every person has his or her own song. 
a song that is as discernible as one's own voice or physical appearance. It is an old legend, and something I'd never given much thought to. Legends, folklore, those just weren't my kind of thing. And as for singing, well, the last time I did that was five years ago at our annual Harvest Festival. Very politely, Royce had whispered into my ear that I was tone-deaf, and should do the world of Celios a favor by mouthing the words. Apparently, I can't carry a pitch to save my life. It's not that kind of song, Luco, my wife had said, after she told me we were going on a pilgrimage to the singing tree. What stuck in my ear was pilgrimage and singing. Those two words implied two things that I've never cared for, religion and traveling. Now I was up against both of them at once. Not that I had much choice in the matter, though. When Myra puts her foot down and makes a decision, I know what the best course of action is. Before we left, I double-checked the orders of Mengus juice against our raw inventory. Myra and I own a small farming operation in the rural plains, south of Felbane. Royce was to keep things running while we were off on this pilgrimage, so I needed to make sure he had enough to work with. It takes a unique skill to extract juice from the Mengus fruit my wife and I being the only ones capable of doing so around here. But for several months it had been mostly me, as Myra had other things on her mind. With the inventory settled, I packed a bag of clothes, toiletries, and threw in a book. I felt aggravated over Myra's decision, and it probably showed. But I told myself that everyone is different, that people process grief in their own ways. For me, there was no question in the matter. I buried my head, along with my hands, into our farm. So maybe I am one for religion. Perhaps work is my religion. I tried to remind myself about the differences in people whenever I caught Myra standing in some corner of the house, obscured in shadow, staring at her empty hands. As if her hands were to blame. But it wasn't easy for me. It's never been easy. Royce missed his calling. He could have been a chef at a fancy restaurant in some city. On the morning of our departure, he made us a breakfast the likes of which I was not accustomed to. I recognized the Moloch eggs and steamed flatbread, but the combination of spices he used summoned flavors that were most foreign. Surreal, even. He smiled and said that the food was befitting, that it would give us plenty of energy for the day. If I hadn't known him better... I would have thought Royce was celebrating our leaving. It is true that we are fortunate to have such a good assistant. Later he crept up behind me and whispered, The missus says you could be gone for up to three weeks. I was on the terrace outside my bedroom, staring at forty hectares of mangus trees. From that spot the crop looked like a vast blue sea. Our transport to Felbane was running late, which did not help to ease my aggravation or calm my nerves. But even so, I welcomed Royce's sudden company. "'How is it a man of your size can move so quietly?' I asked him, taking note of his tall and stout figure and his scruffy beard, which framed a face that belied the very manner in which the rest of him portrayed. Royce's unvarying, harmless smile was akin to the galaxy of hope. "'I just read the data feed.' 
he said, ignoring my comment. It is only a three-day journey to the tree. You must have trained to be an assassin in your younger years, I continued. He gave me a look. Don't be so evasive, Master Luco. I don't know, Royce. I turned my head and looked back at the Sea of Mengus. I'm not sure if we'll ever come back. One of us, at least. Why would you say that? Of course you'll come back. Yes, yes, of course we'll come back. It's just that, well, since we lost the kids, Myra hasn't been herself, as you know. And there's the rub. Sometimes I wondered if Myra blamed me as much as she did her own hands whenever she stood there in the shadows. She never said anything, never pointed a finger, but there were a few looks she'd given, looks that made me wonder. None of it made any sense, not her looks, nor her hands, and certainly not the meaning behind the tragedy. Royce shifted his weight, scratched his beard, and said, It is a hard thing to accept. I should point out that this man is a gentle bear amongst other men. It is no large feat for me to picture him with a smile on his face, as his great paws handle a fragile object such as a tiny bird. Without a doubt, the image adequately captures the conduct of Royce's spirit. He, of all of us, cried the loudest when we found the children in the canal. Any word from our transport? I asked, changing the subject. No, Master Luco, but I'll go check the data feed. Our trip into Felbane was uneventful. It had been almost three years since I last visited the city, but nothing seemed to have changed. It is still a fast-paced metropolis with millions of galactic citizens wandering around in throngs, speaking into picticoms. The city is a center for commerce and finance, and one of the largest business hubs on all of Celios. I can't really say anything good about Felbane. Nothing to my liking, that is. I was glad we were only passing through. However, the visit did remind me of just how many life forms there are in the vast cluster of planets that orbit our community in the galaxy, which amounts to an infinitely small pocket of the known universe. <laughs> There's a mouthful. Regardless, I sometimes wonder, all that life, how can one single god keep track of all that life? Royce likes to call me a realist. Mind you, he only says this after a few hours into a night of sampling a fermented batch of our esteemed product. Of course, I could never agree with the man, as that would give him too much satisfaction. Instead, I always tell him that an idealist, such as himself, would likely favor the title of realist. That, and my laughter, gets him every time. All the same... If Royce knew how much his accusation had often plagued my mind, he would likely fall over from his own laughter. Passing through Felbane was a bold reminder of my realistic nature, and it, well, it bothered me. More than once I hesitated in thought and action, and just about up and left Myra to this idealistic notion of visiting a singing tree. But I am nothing if not loyal. I bucked up, as the saying goes. And before long, we were on a convertible airskiff, sailing away from Felbane and towards the remote town of Scree. 
And this, of course, was where I would meet the miniature version of Royce, with the talent of pushing at the layers of my disguise. This is where I would meet Mopetta. The heat was unbearable. I stood at the rail of the airskiff for five hours, watching the tall grass and brackish water speed by, while my forehead dripped a steady stream of sweat. My clothes were a sodden mess, as I'd picked the wrong type of gear. I don't often read data feeds, and, well, I suppose I can't hold Royce responsible for every action I don't take. Nor could I have blamed Myra, as she was in her own world. Standing at the rail, dripping like a cracked irrigation pipe, I recalled my father's noble advice of long ago. Wipe your own bottom, boy. My aggravation came back, such that it was difficult to appreciate the unique landscape masking Scree. As we approached the end of our ride, a barricade of nature with towering trees and countless shades of green consumed the horizon. The airskiff settled down onto a large delta, which, against the jungle ahead, looked like the world's last stretch of open land. There were other passengers on the airskiff, but Myra and I were the only ones disembarking at the Delta. We took our bags and walked down the ramp, stepping onto a soft, sandy beach, where a swarm of flies immediately assaulted us. A raised walkway, easily several hundred feet in length, straddled three tributaries, and we followed it until we came upon a dock. There was a small wooden boat there, with an old man inside. At least this ride isn't late. I said, wiping sweat from my brow. The first thing I noticed were the old man's eyes, which were a deep blue and looked like cold ice, accentuated by his long, snowy hair. But his gaze was warm enough. He smiled at Myra, took her bag, and then helped her into the boat. I sat next to my wife, and moments later the old man, using a long pole, pushed us out into the current and toward the massive jungle. He never said a word, and it was as if he were keeping silent out of deference. That's what my thoughts had told me, at least. He paused once to tweak with an outboard motor, which he never used, as the current did most of the work, and then just stood at the stern and guided us along. Between his and Myra's own silent vigil, I found myself in a strange deliverance of distraction for what seemed like the first time in many, many years. I remember my breathing. Despite the heat, it had become slow and deliberate, echoing the easing current beneath us. We followed along a tributary that had gradually increased in width, yet decreased in speed, and the massive jungle swallowed us whole. Suddenly, a canopy of greenery a quarter of a mile high surrounded us in eerie shadow. A multitude of sounds, foreign, common, distant, and near, replaced the stillness of the delta. Water fell in drops off leaves, striking the forest floor and the river, causing a steady, percussive resonance. An uncountable variation of chirps and whistles, and numerous other strange animal noises served as background vocals in this concerto of nature. But it was impossible to identify the main theme, or resounding melody. Listen to me, I sound like Royce. He would be so proud. 
A sharp laugh broke the jungle's cadence, and I thought it sounded human. I looked up at the old man, but he seemed impassive, unfazed, and this observation demonstrated how restrictive I've been on my life for so many years. It occurred to me then that perhaps I should think better about traveling. We came upon a cluster of swilno trees. These monstrosities of nature were responsible for the enormous canopy looming high above us. Most of the older trees are in excess of 1,500 feet tall, and with trunks two, maybe 300 feet in width. Their leaves are similar to fern fronds and draped down in long, spindly vines, so dense as to be almost impenetrable by the daylight above. The root systems of these trees are particularly interesting, as in time they tend to buckle out of the ground, making strange crisscrossing patterns around the tree's perimeter. For the ones that we approached, the root segments had risen out of the water, describing easily, and eerily, enough the tentacles of some great beast lurking below. Our guide navigated us into a maze of darkened tunnels within these erupted roots. As we entered the darkness, a small gas lamp hanging from the bow ignited in slow measure, radiating a blue aura that seemed timid in strength and in reach. Myra took my hand in hers, and I turned to her. She was looking up at the dusky warren surrounding us. Her eyes were sapphires in the night sky. A bit spooky, isn't it? I said. She squeezed my hand in response. The sense of sulfur and rotten vegetable matter saturated the air, thick and suffocating, as bad as the humidity. It only took a few minutes before our journey into the labyrinth lost its novelty. But the journey itself lasted for almost an hour. I was more than grateful when we exited out into fresher air. And as it happened, the river opened up into a wide lagoon, the water calm at last, as if it had reached its destination, as we had ours. Before us stood a single, massive swilno tree. Its trunk stretched several hundred feet up before vanishing into a vast dome, the underbelly of the jungle's canopy. A thin, olive-colored miasma accented the sky high above us. I saw a flock of long-necked birds move across the sky in apparent slow motion, mimicking our own approach to the great Swilno. Interestingly enough, the trunk of this tree was so wide, it housed several homes cut into it. There were green and orange lights flickering from the porches a hundred feet up, and more. At the tree's base was a circular dock, mooring two other boats similar to ours and behind this prominent structure was a series of thatch-roofed buildings that stretched along the Swilno's perimeter, and even into the forest beyond. This was our predestination. This was Scree. We tied up at the dock, and I paid the old man. A gaggle of young boys swooped in and gathered our bags. Myra and I followed them up several flights of wooden stairs, and then into a foyer carved within the base of the tree the reception area of our hotel for the night. Within this foyer, flowering plants hung from rafters, their petals a mixture of citrus colors, orange, yellow, and pale green, contrasting somewhat against the overall earthy tones surrounding us. A long counter made from polished ebony split the room in half, and Myra and I found ourselves leaning heavily against it, 
We were both exhausted from traveling. And the heat. I just want to go to sleep, Myra said. But first, let's eat, I replied. And then, in the morning, we go home? Myra gave me one of her looks. The kind that says, Not now, Luco, I'm too tired for your jokes. I shut up, we checked in, and room service brought us a banquet of fine cuisine. After a refreshing shower, we were both in bed. Myra fell fast asleep, and so did I, but not before considering two notions that had recently gripped my attention. The first was the note we'd found on a table, along with two backpacks, after entering the room. It was comprised of a simple phrase that read, Early start. Hiking gear only. Bring the packs. Signed, Mopetta. And the second notion was that after all those months spent in painful shadow, there was still a certain glow that endured upon my wife. Her shoulder-cropped, dirty blonde hair, the golden hue of her skin, those creases at the corner of her eyes, ever so eager to remind me of the broad smile she harbored within. This second notion, I realized, was that my wife was still as gorgeous a creature as ever. This would be an incomplete testimony if I failed to include the dreams that had haunted the corners of my sleep for almost a year. Inos and Sage are twins. He and she were both as similar and different as one could expect. They had just had their eighth birthday, and were coming of an age where the glimpse of a more studious nature within their personalities had begun to show. On some days, Inos took to following me around the farm, curious as to all the things I did and how I did them. He kept bugging me to teach him how to extract mangus juice, which never ceased to humor, and at the same time gratify me. What father wouldn't want his son to follow in his footsteps? Then there was Sage. My wife and I could not have picked a better name. Our daughter was the kitchen's butterfly, mysteriously present whenever food lay ripe upon the counters, her fingers like insect legs discovering a world of scrumptious delights. And when there was no food around for the sampling... Sage would go find Royce, whom, she had long since learned, always had some sort of sweet morsel on his person. Such were the ways of our daughter, likely destined at a future time to follow our assistant's own talents in the kitchen. These were my children, and these were my memories of them, soft and endearing. Yet so bold as to never leave me alone, my sleep being the playground for which to badger me in. It goes without saying I dreamt of my children that night, while in Scree. I heard their voices, plain and clear, the words they spoke, their laughter, the sweet music to this father's ear. But when I woke at the small hour of dawn, and, as it had been every sad morning since the accident, I saw in my mind's eye once again their pale, bloated faces, with their vacant eyes staring up into that great dead sky so many people call heaven. He was short, not more than two feet tall. His skin was a deep plum, lightly contrasted by an ensemble of beige clothing. He looked ridiculously like a toddler, waiting for us at the head of the trail, staring with dull, bovine eyes. This was our guide? I asked myself. Good morning, adventure seekers, he said in a shrill, childlike voice. Good morning to you, Myra replied. She squatted down and shook his hand, the both of them smiling concurrently. 
I am Mapetta, and I am your guide. How trite, I thought, as my wife and I returned his introduction. This creature, as I realized from first glance, was a Bami, a race that hailed from the distant planet of Dangnango. Bamis were widely known for their inquisitive minds, explaining their presence in just about every corner of the reachable galaxy. That said, this was my first face-to-face -face meeting with one of them, and I marveled over his face, feline in aspect, yet hairless, with skin as smooth as an eggshell, and long black whiskers protruding from around his nose. Our travel to the tree? It will be short. Only a few days, lest we encounter any extreme waywordings. Mopetta carried a pointed walking stick, which fell in an odd yet direct rhythm to his speech. And of his speech, it was strange. There was an indistinguishable cadence to how he spoke, his words and syllables being frequently disjointed from what the common tongue would dictate. No matter how hard I try, I'll never do justice to mimicking Mopetta's speech patterns here in this writing. I found that I kept looking at his ears, or what I first assumed were them. He had no lobes on the side of his head, but instead only a series of small holes, similar to the cover of an acoustic device, and more specifically, quite similar to something man-made. As I took my glances, I briefly wondered if Mopetta wasn't a true Bami, but merely a cybernetic organism. He caught me in one of my stares, then answered my riddle. Rest assured, Mr. Luco, none, so far, as of this day, has proven me different to what I am. Is that so? I replied. I've never been one for being coy on matters. They always stare. They always wonder. They always beg. For answers both great and small. Mopetta poked his walking stick into the ground three times as he said this timing these accents to the play of his words. We began walking along a damp wooden path, surrounded by lush greenery, and two feet above a world of sticky muck. Well now, I replied, half a smile working over my lips. That sounds like something that had come from my own mouth. This journey may have its payoff yet. From the corner of my eye, I saw Myra's scowl, and a twinge of guilt nestled itself inside my gut. Oh. Mopetta started, the tone of his voice lowering by at least an octave. Maybe two. So, there. It is more than one surprise. In store for you, Mr. Luco. In truth, Mopetta and I had some things in common. An abrasive gall not found in basic social diplomacy being one of them. Two hours in, and our path took us above and away from the watery mires surrounding Scree. With each mile the wooden boards that creaked under our feet became sturdier, less weathered. We had entered a drier climate, albeit measured only by small degrees, but enough to provide small comforts as well. It seemed as if this new forest covering us had once sprouted from a canvas of organic plateaus, Artificial mountains long built through layers upon layers of jungle erosion. Trees similar to oaks, but greener and much, much bigger, stitched a puzzle of wondrous alcoves and solemn caves into every distant corner and pocket of landscape my eyes fell upon. 
While Myra and Mopetta danced their way through lasting conversation, mulling over the mundane, my attention grew further away from where I presently walked, and closer to the world around me. Like the previous day, I was once again mesmerized by the surrounding awe of a foreign land. Amongst the dull shades of loam and plant matter, there existed in the forest an iridescent blue glow inherent to a variety of leaves and flowers, and even to the distant air, such that it absorbed my attention with wonder. I gave a momentary thought to Royce, picturing him at my side, cooing over these magnificent sights. Without a doubt, his appreciation would have certainly dwarfed that of my own. We stopped for lunch in a small clearing, a swath of blue grass that stretched far to our right, ending in a bank of dense undergrowth. A large gray boulder sat in the middle of the clearing, like some old sentinel of a long-forgotten time. The hard stone served as a convenient backrest, and as I stretched my legs and closed my eyes, preparing to take a nap, I observed the sudden sweet odor of sugared berries. Mopetta had opened his pack and revealed as much. In a wooden bowl, he began to mix the berries with powdered cream and citrus juice, adding a pinch of dried ginger. I couldn't stop my mouth from watering if I wanted to. You do not believe in the tree, Mr. Luco. Mopetta's blunt announcement surprised me, and Myra's guilt-ridden glance in my direction hardly escaped my notice either. Well now, I replied, adding a soft chuckle. I don't see how it really matters much. Our guide gave me an odd look, his eyes dwindling on the verge of disdain, and for once I felt uncomfortable in his presence, despite his size and stature. I mean, I continued, somewhat haltingly, I'm here for her, am I not? With a hand I gestured to my wife, hoping the matter now settled. Yes, Mopetta said. We can see you are here for her. But eventually you'll reach. It will be expected to go farther. He gave the concoction in the bowl a final stir before handing it to Myra. And I think maybe you have already known this. Well, I'm not entirely sure I understand what you're talking about, I said. I began to explore my own pack, where I found and retrieved a bundle of dried meat, and as I unwrapped the bundle and began to chew diligently, I gave Mopetta a cursory glance. It is sad that you will not admit to that which you wish to resolve, he said. Now I looked at Myra. How much did you say we paid for this trip? I asked. My wife smiled in return. Oh, my dear Luco, listen for once. She is correct, Mopetta added. To listen is to hear. And the sooner you begin to hear, the sooner the music will come. Well, I replied, turning away from them. Right now, I think I've heard quite enough. The fact is, I was perturbed not only by Mopetta's frequently abrupt and probing manner, but also by what I knew was the truth behind his words. For the time being, they gave it a break. We finished lunch and then recommenced with our journey. As we walked along the wooden path, 
I contemplated some of the mundane questions regarding our specific adventure. For example, why is it that we had to walk to this tree, that there were no other practical forms of transportation? Also, what was the purpose of having a guide if the path lay all but clear? I took my time picking at these riddles, as I wasn't yet of the right mind to ask Mopetta. We made camp in a field of blue and yellow flowers, beside a small pond fed by a busy creek. I knew that the trickling sound of water would put me right to sleep, as tired as I was. But for all that, I was now suddenly in the mood to stay up, and perhaps talk. Mopetta made short work of building a fire, and before long he had a pot of stew bubbling over some embers. Myra consumed half a bowl's worth, along with some mulled wine, and then she was in her sack, out like a light. I ate the rest of her serving, and then some, thanking our guide for his hospitality. Mopetta smiled graciously, gestured with a nod, waved a hand as if to say, Don't mention it. But there seemed to be an elephant standing within our camp all the same. I knew it wouldn't take long, so I preempted our debate with those riddles I'd been pondering over earlier, walking to the tree, the need for a guide. Mopetta answered both questions with a single sentence. Not just anyone should visit the singing tree. In retrospect, it was the perfect answer. But in the moment, I was left feeling unconvinced. And why not? I asked. Mopetta paused at length, sipping tea from a cup, before saying, As you do not yet believe in the tree, so too you will not understand why this is so. He set his cup down and pulled his sleeping sack from his backpack, unraveling it onto the grass beside the fire. It is only a waste of time for me. I was both puzzled and angered. His use of the word yet lingered in my ear, like the haunting of some soothsayer's premonition. But also, I was mad with his offhand response, which I perceived as discarding of my perspective. I was insulted, I'd realized. Just like that, you're going to turn in? I asked. Mopetta gave me a pointed stare, his eyes in deep search of something, so it seemed. He set aside his sleeping sack and came back to the fire. Very good, Mr. Luco, he said. Inwardly, I smiled. Facts remain, Mopetta argued. There is much you do not believe in. Well, there is also much I do believe in. I believe in the land, hard work, family, and friends. Yes, yes, you do. And these things, they are most commendable, my friend. However, and this I find interesting, you do not believe in a god, either. How do you know that? It is written on your face, Mr. Luco. I did not deny his accusation, and, as if in answer, my lengthy silence spoke volumes. I find it interesting, as much, that this is where you stand, he added. Only because your life is in the dirt. Farming cultures often look to something higher than the crude face of reality. At this, I took my shot. I never said that I don't believe in something higher, 
I just don't believe in something single. A single god, for example. The universe is much too complicated for one such singularity to exist in control. I chuckled at my own pun. You are a clever one, Mopetta granted. I will give you that, Mr. Luco. Why, thank you. And you are peculiar, he added, not skipping a beat. To lose one's children, what greater event in the universe can blossom one's belief in that which is singular and complete? His words felt like a hot dagger had been thrust into my stomach. I was almost left speechless. Boy, you certainly don't beat around the bush, do you? Which brings us to why you are here, he said. The singing tree, Mr. Luco, is for Myra and others of her kind. But it can also be for you and your kind. In some strange way, this creature redeemed himself by telling me this. And, at the very least, his words adequately deflected my anger. Well, I don't know about that, I replied. But like I said earlier, I am here for my wife, if this is what she needs. Mopetta's stare once again burned deeply, and I can only guess as to what he was thinking. The remainder of our journey lasted two days, and was uneventful by way of discourse. I fell into the trap of the mundane, talking lightly about the weather, our beautiful surroundings, and whatnot. That night at the fire, Mopetta had given me more than enough to think about, and I believe he knew this. Our guide seemed quite willing to simply lead my wife and me to our final destination, although he and Myra did seem closer than ever. It was as if they had formed a familiar bond. I admit that I did feel some jealousy over this, but I remembered what Mopetta had said about the tree, that it's for Myra and those of her kind. I think I was beginning to understand what he meant by that. The singing tree was breathtaking. Quite possibly, it is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen conjured by nature. Within a bowl of snow-capped mountains, the tree sat in the middle of an enormous vale by its lonesome self a sea of yellow grass surrounding it. It looked similar to any simple oak tree, except for its great height and its astounding symmetry, one that could only have been reproduced by a team of master arborists. Upon closer inspection, I observed that the tree stood on an island, surrounded by a wide gorge which led down into unknown fathoms. It was a moat of the abyss, per se. Spanning this protective chasm was a single bridge, ornately designed out of a mixture of rosewood and polished metal. The bridge also had gold and copper archways segmented across its length. Every part of it was smooth to the touch, and in total, it must have been five hundred feet long. The bridge itself, I realized, was almost as beautiful as the tree. But there was so much more to the singing tree. Several hundred yards from the opening of the veil, I had begun to hear the music. It was a series of harmonies that floated in the air, and was soft and pleasing to the ear. And of the musical instruments represented by these harmonies, there were many, ranging from stringed and wind-blown families to the more eclectic sort, such as steel kettles and glass paraphones, 
the music had a lifting effect to my mood. Although I am sure that Mopetta would have argued that this music to be only superficial to the true song at hand. That what I had heard was merely the overtones of the masterpiece being played within the tree itself. The bridge ended at the tree's entrance, by way of an arched entryway burned onto the surface of the tree's trunk. This doorway glowed with an iridescent blue shine, similar to what I had observed a few days prior within the forest. This door, however, was much more brilliant in its brightness. A wide, circular veranda drew a perimeter around the trunk, surrounding the tree's entryway. Along this veranda were five benches made from blown glass and striated in multiple colors. When we arrived at the tree, Mopetta suggested we rest for the remainder of the day. He felt that perhaps we could visit the tree in the morning, but Myra would have none of that. She was more than ready to go inside. So we crossed the magnificent bridge, and I sat down on the bench nearest the tree's entrance. Mopetta loitered about the veranda, silent and expressionless, reminding me of that old man from the boat. And Myra, she was a statue facing that entrance. I thought further about the old man, how I too must have looked like him, in deference to the moment. All the build-up, the suspense, my debate with Mopetta, and perhaps life itself, I realized that it had all congregated to this one point in time. And then the cynic in me got to whispering, as always, telling me that nothing about this tree, or this moment, was anything more than what I had observed it to be. Nothing was more than its simple face value. But then I found myself chewing on a nail after Myra had suddenly taken a step, disappearing into the tree. My wife stayed in there for over an hour. I was beginning to worry about her. But Mapetta remained aloof, even distant, which eased my nerves somewhat. If he wasn't worried about Myra, then why should I be? Not long after this, Myra suddenly stepped out. She lunged forward and fell into my arms. She was weeping like a child, her whole body convulsing, her breathing drawing in tight gasps and long exhales. I hadn't seen my wife like this since the day our children had died, and it scared me. What's wrong? I asked her, but she didn't reply. She kept crying and hugging me with all her strength, such that I began to feel angry, not knowing what to do or what to fix. Myra, my dear, what is wrong? I took her chin in my hand and pulled her face toward my own. Tell me, please. She sucked in a few long breaths, gathering herself. Then she opened her eyes and said, I heard them sing, Luco. I heard their songs. Myra broke down once again, pushing her head against my chest, and I just held her. I held her there for the longest time, on that bench, while Mopetta stirred in the background, and my wife cried tears of joy and sadness. And amongst all of this, that entrance to the singing tree, it just stared a hole right into my face. We stayed in the Vale for three days. Four more times Myra went into the tree, and each time she came out, she was a little less distressed as that first time. It seemed as if she was becoming more at peace with the universe. In that time, 
Mopetta had evolved into a steady companion of mine. I spent much of those days with him, learning about his culture and where he'd come from, and also why he chose to live here on Celios. He has quite the colorful past, which has undoubtedly served as the catalyst for his unique wisdom. Although we did find ourselves involved in more philosophical debates, I had quickly begun to regard Mopetta as a dear friend, a feeling that remains to this day. And what of my own visit within the tree? I entered the singing tree on the day before we left, finally summoning the courage to push aside my pride, giving in to curiosity. Inside, it was all light, a white light as blinding as any sun, but cool and warm at the same time, a light that felt just right. A light that forced me down to my knees and bent my head and closed my eyes while I sat and listened. I heard my son's song, and Inos's voice was exactly as I'd remembered, the same soft quality of his youth. He sang words of joy and of strength, and how he was so proud of me, as if our roles had been reversed, and that Inos was now my own father. I heard Sage, my little butterfly, and she too sang in a voice that I could never deny as to its authenticity. Her lyrics were simple. They commanded me to love, to love my wife, love my friends, and even love those of whom I barely knew. For all that I am and all that I hold dear, my daughter sang, I am nothing if I fail to show this through the act of love. Then they both sang. Inos and Sage brought their voices together and sang a song that forced my body onto the floor. I collapsed into a heap of convulsing spasms, weeping long and loud as I shed tears for my lost children. In their lyrics they beseeched me to stop punishing myself, and they reminded me that the multitude of decades which presently lie in wait for me are but measures of a time so trivial they would amount to less than a single drop of rain within the vastness of an ocean. But most profound of all was that together my children sang a song of eternal hope. They promised me, in their song, that when the journey ends, the time will come when we shall all sing together once again, and that that will be our final song, a song that shall last forever. When we got home, Myra immediately told Royce to pack his bags. It was my idea that he should go on his own pilgrimage to the singing tree, an idea that signifies just how much my trip had changed me. In response, Royce was beside himself, and he cried like a child on the morning of his departure. I made him my own version of an exquisite breakfast, and told him to take all the time he needed, that Myra and I would be just fine without him. "'Are you sure, Master Luco?' he said, his voice trembling along with his hands. "'I'm sure I can be back within a week.' "'Just go, my friend,' I told him. "'Go,' and say hello to Mopetta for me. After Royce left, my wife found me standing on the terrace outside our bedroom, the blue sea of Mengis dancing in the morning breeze. Such a beautiful sight, she declared, slipping her arms around my waist, pulling me in for a hug. I've always loved this spot. As have I, I replied with a smile, reminded then of the words behind my daughter's song. 
I have a great idea, Luko, Myra continued, her voice bubbling with excitement. How about tonight we steal down into the basement and extract Mingus juice until the crack of dawn? You know, like we used to years ago. Well, I think that's an excellent idea, I replied. But there's just one problem with it. What would that be, my love? What are we going to do until then? Oh, I'm sure we can find a way to pass the time. And it was as I told Royce. The songs of our children were finally echoing in harmony within our hearts. And because of this, Myra and I were just fine. And there you go. Big thank you to Chris. Chris, thank you so much indeed. And Anthony, man, yes, more, more, sir, more if we can. Gentlemen, thank you so much indeed. So that is the show today. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I am now going to fix a hosepipe for my mother. Yeah, she's got this. I don't know what it is. She says, it's a bit rather big, Tony. I think it's about 100 bloody metres of like this winding hosepipe that she needs fitting to her wall so she can water her garden. And I'm getting it in a bit of a knot, our son. So I'm going over there. I've been in the allotment all this week, all last week. Man, building raised beds, if you wanted to watch that on YouTube as well, that's fantastic. But me bees are coming. Me bees are coming. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moving, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slow Get out there by and by I'll get out there by
quiere 